Well, I'm sure you saw the ad or maybe you've heard about it by now, but it was uh, one of the ones that stuck out in the Super Bowl. And it was by an organization called He Gets Us. And so you saw scenes of foot washing that splashed across the screen as the video rolled and as there was a narration behind it that was talking about how uh, we really just need to set aside our, our differences and love one another. Because after all, Jesus was the epitome of love. And so we should love one another because he gets us. He gets that we all have our faults and our failures. But really, you know what? It's okay because still he, he washed our feet and we should wash the feet of one another. There's a problem though when we dig a little deeper. And this is from this organization's website. Uh, quotes from them themselves. Uh, he says this, the author does, Jesus welcomed the weird, loved the weird, and, and built a movement full of weirdos that ended up changing the world. Okay, I'm okay with that to, to this point. I, I would say I'm a, I'm a weirdo. I'm, I'm glad that he loved a, a group full of weirdos. The example reminds us that every person has incredible value and their story and their identity, no matter how strange, are beautiful and important. Well, that's where to continue the football analogy, we need to throw a flag on the play. Jesus didn't come to me in my sinfulness to say that my broken and fallen identity is valuable and important. He came to give me a new identity in Christ. Beyond that, though, the, the organization goes on. He says, Jesus used his voice, but he didn't shout. He not only stayed on the path of preaching patience, selflessness, and love. What word is missing from that? It's the word that led his message, repent and believe. For the kingdom of God is at hand. But more importantly, he also demonstrated them. He responded to the ever-increasing volume of hate with quiet and deliberate acts of love. I would like to submit for evidence Matthew 23 and his interaction with the Pharisees where he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And the result is evident in the fact that we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. His love was louder and it still is. You see, there's things about this that sound appealing and sound good. There's true-ish statements here, but there's concern as well. Finally, this organization says, how did we get here, speaking of our current divisive culture? What might we learn from the example of Jesus to move beyond the animosity we feel for one another? How can we rediscover? So see, the implication is we've lost it. We don't understand it. We don't get it anymore. How can we rediscover the life and teaching of Jesus, the world's most radical love activist? That's our agenda at He Gets Us, to move beyond the mess of our current cultural moment to a place where all of us are invited to, again, the word, rediscover the love story of Jesus, Christians, non-Christians, and everybody in between, all of us. Well, I, I, I don't pick on them without reason. Maybe you were thinking, you know what, well, well, at least the name was Jesus of Jesus was somewhere in the Super Bowl. But here's the problem, y'all. What this organization means when they say he gets us is not what the Bible means when it reveals that he does in fact get us. It's true. God gets us. Jesus gets us. But not like this. See, this group has hijacked Jesus to be used as their mascot for what essentially boils down to uh, the social gospel. Where the goal for them is that everyone is okay and accepted and we all just learn to kind of get along with each other. But this is such a short changing of what it really means that God gets us. See, Jesus didn't come to be our universal kumbaya. 
He came to address our real need because the reality is that he does get us. He gets that we're weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God, as he writes about in Romans 5. And that the greatest act of love is that he did something about that. As much as it's good news that he gets us, y'all, we have to make sure that we get him. We have to make sure that we understand why he came. That we understand why it's good news that he gets us and what he did about that. Are we coming to him to meet our true need, which is the need that we would be saved from our sins? Yes, he does get us. Jesus does. The Father does. And that's immensely good news. It's good news that impacts our past, our present, and our future. And so, yes, he gets us, but have we gotten him? I hope to help us with that in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. So take your Bibles open to John chapter 6. To catch us up, we saw at the beginning of John chapter 6 the feeding of the 5,000 men, probably fifteen to 20,000 people, an act that was clearly a miracle, taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding a multitude that size. Think of the sold-out American Airlines Center to get a picture of how that crowd would have looked. So feeding a massive group of people, this is a miracle. Well, afterwards, the people are excited. They're looking at Jesus saying, you must be the prophet like Moses that was talked about back in Deuteronomy 18. And they're thinking that maybe they're going to make him king. So Jesus withdraws on the mountain by himself. He sends his disciples across the sea back to Capernaum ahead of him. And then in the middle of the night, Jesus goes to meet them on the, the, the water. Not in a boat, but walking on the water. The disciples are afraid they eventually realize it's Jesus when Jesus says, behold, it is I, I'm here. And they take him into the boat and the storm is calmed and they're immediately at their destination. Another God thing one, another miracle that takes place here. Well, they arrive at the destination. The crowds, meanwhile, that he fed show back up on the other side the next day and they're going, wait a minute, where did he go? Our meal ticket's gone. And so they run around the edge of the lake and they get over to Capernaum around the same time that Jesus and the disciples arrive there. And they say, where did you come from? How'd you get here? And Jesus said, I tell you, you're not looking after me. You're not seeking me because you really want me. You're seeking me because you want what I can provide for you. You want more food. You want your stomachs to be full again. And that's where we pick up our text. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now in our text, verse 30, they say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. All right, well, let's dive in and unpack this text beginning in verse 30. The the crowd wants proof. Okay, you want us to believe in you. What are you going to do so that we might believe? What sign do you do that we might see and believe? See, this crowd was thinking, okay, if you can do something even better than you've already done, well, then maybe we'll believe what you're saying here. It's a bold, it's, it's, a, it's a disrespectful request, considering that they had just seen Jesus take five loaves and two fish and feed 15,000 people. Uh, that, that's pretty astounding by itself. But here they want more from him. And so they're, they're beckoning. And they, they ask him this question, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Look back across the page at your Bibles at, at uh, John chapter 6, verse 4. And you'll read a, a little time marker here that doesn't necessarily do much to advance the, the initial story there of feeding the 5,000, but sets the context for what the rest of this is all about. 
It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this was a, an atmosphere. This was a situation where everybody was getting ready to celebrate the Passover feast, which looked back to the Exodus. If you're tracking with us in our daily Bible reading, this is not in the, the rearview mirror too, too far back for us. We've been studying this. We've been reading about this. In fact, we're in Leviticus. Leviticus is talking about the Passover feast that we're to celebrate or that the Jews were to celebrate. And so this was a time that they were looking back. They were thinking about the Exodus. They were thinking about Moses. They were thinking about the, the bread that God provided for them. They're suspicious, as we already mentioned earlier in chapter 6, that Jesus might be the prophet like Moses. And so here they're saying, if you want us to believe in you, and you really are the prophet like Moses, hey, you know what Moses did for us? Moses gave us manna. Moses gave us this bread from heaven to eat. Moses. Why the infatuation with Moses? This is where you and I need to do a little bit of work here because for us, Moses has always been second to Jesus. We've understood, for example, what the writer of Hebrews wrote about when he said that Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God, Hebrews chapter 3, but Jesus is the faithful son over the house. So we've had this mindset to say, yeah, Moses was great, but Jesus is better. This crowd didn't yet understand that. And that's what Jesus was trying to lead them to understand. But for this crowd, Moses was the single greatest redeemer that they had ever known. No one had delivered the, the nation of Israel the way that Moses had delivered the nation of Israel. He had freed them from slavery in Egypt, and he was the one. He was the one that provided the law. He was the one that had written the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And so he was of utmost significance to them. And so they're appealing back to him, saying, if, if you're greater than Moses, then we're willing to follow you. And Moses gave us manna. So they're challenging Jesus, throwing the gauntlet down to Jesus, saying, okay, let's see it. But the thing is, Jesus didn't come down to do the will of the masses, but the will of the Father. And his Father knew that it wasn't another sign that they needed from Jesus, but Jesus himself. And so as we continue in this text, in, in verse 32, Jesus responds to the crowds and the request to, hey, show us something greater than Moses here. And he responds to them by saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus' response begins with truly, truly, emphatically calling their attention to what he was about to say. Listen, behold, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus was jealous that the Father should receive the glory that he's due. And so the first thing he does here is he corrects a misunderstanding that it wasn't Moses who gave them the manna to begin with. Moses, he says, was, was simply the mediator. God was the one working through Moses here. So he wants to, to begin by saying, let's get this right. It was God who gave them the bread and who now gives you true bread from heaven. There was a rabbinic tradition that looked at the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what we call the Torah, and they referred to the Torah as the bread from God, the bread of God. And so there's actually two things at work here that Jesus is doing with this crowd. He's talking to them and correcting their understanding about the manna, but he's also correcting their understanding about the, what really was the most important section of Scripture in the Jewish mind, which was the law, the Torah. And he's saying that something better than both was now here. Notice again, even the verb tense here in the passage, who gives you true bread from heaven. It was the, the father who gave you bread from heaven, but now my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, the Torah, 
would have been echoing in their minds at this point, is he. It's a person. It's, it's not a, a, a thing. It's not a, a miracle. It's not a work. It's a person. It's Jesus. The bread from heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You remember how John opened his gospel, don't you? In the beginning was the what? The word, the logos, the self-expression of God, the greatest revelation, the greatest message from God. And here Jesus is saying that the better message, the better revelation, the better word, the better bread, the better source of life is here. He who gives you true bread from heaven, he's given you Jesus. The crowd responds in verse 34, and they say to Jesus, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus responds in the verse part of verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. It's the first of seven I am statements that Jesus will make in the gospel of John. Statements that identify him, that reveal who he is and part of his identity. And this is the first one. And they say, give us this bread always. Well, just like Nicodemus, you remember Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's not possible. You remember the woman at the well? Just like her too. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. You don't have a cup. How are you going to get water? Or you remember the, the paralytic? Do you wish to be made well? Uh, yeah, I've been here for 40 years lying by the pool and I can't get in the water. Of course I wish to be made well. All of those three, what, what was in common with all of them is it, they didn't realize that Jesus was trying to take them from the physical to the spiritual. And it's the same thing with the crowd here. They're saying, give us this bread. You got this bread? Give us this bread. This is great. Give us this bread that we might always have it and never be hungry. And Jesus then reveals, and here's the punchline, I am the bread of life. Y'all, as the, the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, they needed food, so God gave them manna. And then after that, God understood that they needed to know how to be the people of God. They needed to know how to approach him, how to worship him, how to conduct their lives before him. So then he gave them the Torah. But listen, both of those things were ultimately to point to a greater reality that met a, a greater need than either of those would meet. They were meant to point to the true, the bread of life. And that is the one that is here. That is the one that's talking to the crowd. That's the one here that's saying, hey, look, the, the past things that you were so excited about, they were all meant to point to me. It's time to move from the past now to realize who it is that's standing right in front of you. And we need to do that as well, church. Our first point this morning is this. Refuse to be satisfied with past pleasures. Refuse to be satisfied with past pleasures. Manna was a big deal. It was one of the most significant miracles that God had worked in the life of Israel. Is how he sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. And so it was a big deal. And it was associated with Moses, who was a, another big deal for the people of Israel. And so for them to, to look at, at Jesus and say, here's the manna, can you do, are you better than this? Or to, to, to look at Jesus and hear Jesus implying that he's better than the Torah even? That would have been mind-boggling for them. You might say, well, I, I don't have manna that I have in my life. And so I don't have that, that, that I would look to Jesus and say, Jesus, are you better than the manna? Because I don't have any manna in my life. Okay, but what about these things that we can appeal to sometimes? Here's some sources of manna in our lives. Relationships, success, wealth, materialism, having successful children, having good physical health, having comfort, peace, and security. 
See, these are all things that at one point in time, before Christ, we may have lived for. And so these are what we're all about. We want good relationships. I want a good marriage. I want to have good relationships with my family. I want, I want that. Or maybe you said, you know what? Success. Look at, look at how great my job is and my work is and all of those things. Isn't this impressive? Look how great this is. I'm matriculating my way up through the ranks and I'm climbing the corporate ladder and this is going to be awesome. And I bought the new house and I've got the right zip code and I've got the right car. Look at this stuff that I've got. This is so great. Isn't this awesome? And we're, we're living thinking this is what's so good. Or maybe it's successful children. You've been focused on, man, I want my kids in the best schools and I want them on the best teams and I want them to have the best equipment and I want them to get the best GPA and I want them to go to the best colleges and I want them to marry the best person and I want them to have the best grandkids. And that's what you've been like, man, my life is about this. This is so great. Isn't this awesome? This is what I'm living for. Or maybe it's physical health. You've thought, man, it's all about making sure that I hit the gym. It's all about making sure that I'm getting swole. It's all about my dietary needs. It's all about making sure that I'm eating the right things. It's all about my Instagram profile, my selfies that I'm taking. And, and that's so great. And that's so awesome for me. Or maybe it's this last one. You're just about, man, I just want to be as comfortable and peaceful and secure as I possibly can in this world. And that's what you thought was the greatest thing. Once you meet Christ, all of this changes. All of this changes. Just like for those that have come to know Jesus, nobody's going, man, I wish I had the manna instead of Jesus, right? Once you know the value of Jesus, no one's going to look at Jesus, the, the true bread from heaven, and say, yeah, I'd rather have the manna. And yet so often that's what we can do with these things. When we make these things the ultimate thing and we forget that they're meant to be a servant that helps us exalt Jesus. Listen, is, is the manna for something that, that we need to despise? Do we need to look back at the story of the, the Exodus and be like, that's not a big deal? No, not at all. It's a massive deal. It's a huge deal. And it was a good thing that God did, but it's not the ultimate thing. It was there to make us better appreciate Jesus. So too, all of the past pleasures of your life, all of the things that you once lived for, so long as they're not sinful, are now platforms that should make you love Jesus more and appreciate Jesus more than you ever have. Maybe you're a parent and you, you say, yeah, I, I want to raise successful children. Look, that's a good desire but not at the expense of doing everything that you can to make sure that you put those kids in the way of the gospel at every single opportunity that you have. If I was to pull your kids aside and ask them the question, you know, what do mommy and daddy want you to be when you grow up? I hope they would answer, they want me to follow Jesus. Your parenting is about Jesus, right? It's good to want to have a successful job, career. That's, that's great. That's great to be able to support your family. That's a good desire. That's not a bad thing. But now that you've received the bread of life, Jesus, your job is now not an end, but it's a means to a greater end, and that is the end of glorifying Jesus. So do you want to work hard now as a follower of Jesus? 100%. Yeah, work hard. Work hard. Do the work. But here, not at the expense of your integrity, or not so much so that you're so busy at work that you can't be involved in the body life of the church. Right? These things are now platforms to make us gr more greatly appreciate Jesus. Or maybe it's your physical health or your comfort. Again, platforms to make us more greatly appreciate Jesus. Our bodies as vessels for exalting Jesus. Your peace and your comfort as a platform to be his ambassador. 
Jesus is better than everything we once lived for in this world. That this crowd thought manna was so important and significant. And listen, it was. But in light of Jesus, it, it, it takes a back seat to him. Jesus changes the way that we look back at that. Jesus, y'all, for you, changes the way that you look back at different things in your life as believers now. Changes the way that you think about different facets of your life. We've had a lot of kids, five of them. And with all of them, you know what I, I always loved is, is when they got to that stage between the, the baby food, like the soft stuff and the, the real stuff, and we got to buy those puffs. Because secretly, I really like puffs. So I'd give like two to my kids and I'd take like three from me. The apple cinnamon ones are the best. And I will fight you about that afterwards if you want to. Today, like there's like weird like peas and carrots. Don't do that to your kids. Give them the apple cinnamon puffs. It's okay. They won't, they won't start walking in circles and running into walls. I promise you. Um, but puffs, right? Puffs are fine. But listen, if, if you're going, hey, Pastor PJ, I've got an option for you. I'll, I'll take you out to, to Hutchins and you can order some brisket from Hutchins or, you, or I've got this can of puffs for you. <laughs> one, one of those is going to win out and it's, uh, it's not the puffs, it's, right? Why? Because our tastes change, our view changes, our understanding changes and we understand what's better. The manna was a shadow of the substance. Jesus was the substance. So we need as the church to quit looking back at the things that we've been called out of and start appreciating how they serve now to make us love Jesus more. Verse 35, Jesus did say to them, I am the bread of life. Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am this one. And then he continued and he said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Okay, so if Jesus really is the bread of life, if Jesus really is the one who is better than the manna and better than the Torah, then we would expect that everyone should want Jesus, but we're going to find that that's not the case. And we'll also find out why. But before we get there, look at the rest of verse 35. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus satisfies. The, the sacrificial system couldn't do this, Right? I mean, think about the, the sacrificial system and, and what its purpose was. They, they would come repeatedly. In fact, this is what the writer of Hebrews means when he writes in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Or the writer says this in two chapters, or a chapter later in Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his exercise, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is what Jesus was implying when he said, if you come to me, you won't hunger and you won't thirst. All of your needs are met in Christ. There's no need to continually come back and to bring the sacrifices and to bring the offerings. All of that will be taken care of because there's going to be one final ultimate sacrifice and that will be sufficient. Jesus is beckoning them to come and believe in him. But look at verse 36. But I said this to you and yet you do not believe. This group 
had seen him. They'd seen his miracles. They'd listened to him teach. And yet they weren't believing. And so why? Why weren't they believing? This is where we get to verse 37. Verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the difference between the crowds here and then the masses on the day of Pentecost who repent and believe in Jesus. This is the difference between James and Judas. This is the difference between those that are responsive to the gospel and those that reject the gospel. In scripture, there are two streams that are both taught. And they're both taught in parallel tension to one another. The first one is the stream of man's responsibility. And we've seen that in verse 35 and 36. Whoever comes to me and believes in me, him I will never cast out. And so we see the responsibility that we have to come and believe in Jesus. Or John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever, what, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead, then, then you will be saved. And so we see the scripture does teach this stream that we are responsible for putting our faith and our trust in Jesus, that we have a responsibility to that, that we will be held accountable for. That's the first stream. But then there's a second stream that's also taught in scripture. And again, these streams seem like they would intersect each other. But what scripture does in a way that is too infinitely wise for us to understand is hold them in perfect parallel tension. And that second stream is the stream of God's sovereignty. And we see that here in this verse. Who is it that will come to Jesus? All that the Father gives him. All that the Father gives him. The the doctrine of God's sovereignty over the eternal state is one of the most difficult and uncomfortable doctrines we find in the Bible. But... We do find it in the Bible, and our discomfort does not negate its reality. And it's not just a verse like this, lest I be accused of cherry picking. How about next week? We're going to look at John 6, where it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or another verse, Romans eight thirty. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we teach and we believe and we hold fast to the reality that not everyone is going to be glorified. In other words, not everyone is going to go to heaven. Hell does exist. And so if not everyone is glorified, if we can work backwards in this chain for a moment, if not everyone is glorified, well, then that means not everyone is going to be justified. And if not everyone is justified, then that means not everyone is going to be called. And if not everyone is called, that means not everyone is predestined. Again, the concept of God's sovereignty over our salvation, over our eternal state, is found in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing, but it is what? It's a gift of God. Well, not everyone has faith. What does that imply? It implies what John 6, 37 says, that those that believe are those that the Father has given to the Son. Is God sovereign over all those who will come to Jesus and believe in him? Yes. Are we responsible to come to Jesus and believe in him? Yes. Both of these truths are taught in the Bible. It's known in the philosophical world as the doctrine of compatibilism. 
But we don't believe it because of philosophy. We believe it because it's what the scripture teaches us. And we can either get mad about that or we can give thanks that he's God and we're not. And we can trust the unfolding of his plan for the salvation both of ourselves and the lost. As you think about the fact that that Jesus does get us. And he came so that we might realize that he's better than our past pleasures. Better than all the things we once lived for. The second reason why that's good news that Jesus gets us. Is because he knew what we needed. God the Father knew what we needed, including even the faith that we possess to believe in Jesus. Second point this morning is this, credit God for present faith. Credit God for present faith. This is what we call, or dealing with what we call, the doctrine of regeneration. If you will, flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, it's to the right in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we find this doctrine laid out for us by the Apostle Paul. Paul says here, of us prior to coming to faith in Christ, you were, what's the word there in your Bibles? You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. What is a dead body able to do? Nothing. Nothing. A dead body can do nothing. And we were dead spiritually, dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do, church? He made us what? He made us alive. He made us alive. This is it right now. This is the, the kernel of the doctrine of regeneration, to be born again, to be taken from death to life. And that is something that has to happen to us. And that's why this is a passive occasion here, a passive tense. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not your own doing. Why is even our faith not our own doing? Because prior to believing, what were we? According to Paul in Ephesians 2. Dead. And what can a dead body do? Nothing. I can't even believe in my dead, unsaved condition. I need God to make me alive and to give me the faith to believe, and that is what we know as regeneration. And you might say, well, how long does that take? What's the gap? And, and let me say this, it's, we can't parse that out from our human understanding. It's instantaneous. It takes place at the moment of conversion, but we do know by nature of the reality and the understanding of this doctrine here and what scripture teaches us that we must first be born again before we can actually have the faith to believe. We must be made alive in order that we might believe in Jesus. 
And so this is that, that dance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We are 100% responsible to believe in Jesus, and yet God is 100% sovereign over that faith. John MacArthur has said on numerous occasions, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And this is where I want to pivot on this, because here's the good news, y'all. The faith that God began in you, he will sustain in you. If you didn't bring your faith to the table, you're not going to walk away from your faith later on. The faith that he gave, as we're going to see in our third point, is going to produce eternal life in us. But let me make the point for us from Peter's words here in 1 Peter 1.5. He speaks to us, he says, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Notice this, by whose power, or who's, who's keeping you in faith? God is. By God's power, through your faith, you are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so this is why you can lay down your head at night, church, and, and, and know that you're not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, forget it, I don't believe any of it. Because the faith that you have is the faith that God has given you, and this is why we're crediting God for our faith. Not just the faith that we got at the moment, but the faith that you have this morning. Your desire to grow in Christ's likeness, God gets the glory for that because he's the one responsible for it in your life. He's the one who gave it to us. He's the one that caused us to be born again. You are secure in your standing because your standing is contingent upon God's faithfulness, not ultimately upon yours. And the word says, and scripture says, that he is going to continue to guard us through that faith. You may say, well, what about those that have walked away? I can tell you, pastor, I can name names that were people that prayed the prayer, that walked the aisle, that said that they were followers of Jesus, and now they're not walking with him at all. What do we do in that situation? And I think the only conclusion that we can come to in that situation is the same conclusion that John does in 1 John 2.19 when he says they went out from us, but they were never truly of us. A saving faith is different from a professing intellect. We can know the facts and even say that we would believe the facts without having a faith in Christ. Maybe you find yourself concerned that that might be you. How do I know that's not me? I want to encourage you with a couple things this morning. Number one, let me encourage you to go back to the fundamentals of the gospel. God Man, Christ, response. Who is God? Who is man? Sinful, fallen, alienated. Who is Christ? Perfect, righteous, sacrificed for me on the cross, rose from the dead. And what's the response that's needed? Repent and believe in Jesus. Go back to that. Do I believe this? Do I believe this? Am I committed to this? Begin with the fundamental. Second, let me encourage you to use the spiritual inventory list that we find in scripture. There's a reason that they're there. Colossians chapter 3, put off this, put on this. Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 2 Peter chapter 1, supplement your faith with these things. In fact, in 2 Peter 1, the very purpose why he gives that list is so that we might increase in our confidence that we are truly in Christ. And so if you doubt or if you wonder or if you fear, use the spiritual inventory lists. Hold them up to your lives. But let me encourage you also to do this because sometimes we can be our harshest critic Talk to somebody you know and who loves you and who cares about you and who's a follower of Jesus as well. Say, hey, do you see these things in my life? I'm struggling right now. Can you encourage me? Do you see evidence of this in my life? Pray. Fourth, 
Pray for confidence. Pray that God will give you that certainty and that assurance in response to your faith. And then finally, examine your life for perhaps there's unconfessed pockets of sin in your life that you do need to bring to the surface and repent of. Unconfessed sin in our life can be a great threat, not to your eternal state, but to your eternal assurance, your confidence in where you stand with Christ. But if you are in Christ, that faith that he's given you is going to be faith that will last. The faith that he began is faith that he will sustain. Okay, but but with all of this, if, if God is sovereign over this, then why evangelize? Let me just address that for a moment. And here's the answer. The answer is because we don't have radars. We don't know who is and who's not a person that's been given to God. And we don't know his time frame of when that is going to be realized in someone's life. So just because you've shared the gospel with your loved one, your family member, and, and they've said thanks but no thanks, doesn't mean that God hasn't given them to Jesus. It may just be that that faith is going to be realized in them, that they're going to be born again later on in their life at a different time. And, and, and so you may say, well, well, why bother evangelizing? Because we don't know. Here's how I'll put it. This believe like a Calvinist, witness like an Arminian. Trust that God is sovereign, but also go out and freely call every single person that you come into contact with to repent and believe in the gospel. Because we have no idea who will and who won't. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But in this point, I want you to stop and think for a minute about God's love for you. That he gets you to the point that he knew that you even needed him to give you that life so that you might believe, so that you might have that faith And as we're about to see in this third point, faith that doesn't just terminate here, but that will ultimately lead you all the way to being with him. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Okay, we've been talking about that. Verse 38, four. He's giving a reason. He's giving an explanation for why he will never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. This promise of our security and our, our, our protection in Christ and that's the focus, that's the emphasis here, not so much on the coming to him, but on the fact that he's got us and he's keeping us and he will preserve us. And we know that because of the context of where he goes from here when he says, for, for I've, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, this is not new information for us. We've, uh, we've encountered this already in John chapter five when he said, I, I only do what the father wants me to do. I've not come to do my own will, but his will. But now we find out more about that will as we look at verse 39 here. In verse 39, he says, this is the will. Don't you love it when the Bible is just plain like that? I've come down to do the will of him who sent me. Which is? Well, it's funny you should ask. This is the will. Here it is. This is it of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christian, this is some of the most encouraging portions of of scripture that we find because here you have Jesus, the son of God, giving you certainty and assurance that you will not fall away if you are in him. Here it is. It is God's will that your faith should endure until the last day. Did you catch that? This is his will, that I will lose nothing of all that he's given me. It is God's will that your faith will endure until the last day. 
Your perseverance in your faith, to put it a different way, is a matter of Christ's obedience to the Father. I've come down to do not my will, but his will. What's his will? That I would lose nothing of all that he's given me. That means if a Christian were to fall away, the son would have been disobedient to the will of the Father. You are secure in your faith in Christ. The last day is a reference to the resurrection. For us, we believe that this is when Christ will come back for his church, the bride, and we will go to be with him. But he doubles down in verse 40. Did you catch that? He says again, this is the will of him who sent me. Twice now. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What kind of life does he talk about here? What kind of life is it? It's eternal life, eternal life. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, y'all, if your future is not secure in Christ, you don't have eternal life, and the Bible is a lie. If you fall away after six weeks, you didn't have eternal life, you had six-week life, or six-year life, or 60-year life, whatever it may be, but it's not eternal. Eternal life doesn't end. If you're in Christ and you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus is telling you this morning, he's got you. And it is the Father's will, which he is perfectly obedient to, that he should lose nothing of all that the Father has given to him. And if you're in Christ this morning, that's you. That's you. This should be so encouraging to us. It's not just that we needed faith, but that we needed a faith that would endure, and God gets us in that. He understands that we need the reassurance, the assurance that we'll make it to the last day, and so he provides it for us here in this text. Point number three this morning is this. Find rest in the certainty of your future. Find rest in the certainty of your future. I know there are people out here who wrestle with doubt and they have anything but rest about where they're going to go. And like I said earlier, there's good responses to that where we should examine ourselves, go back over the gospel, go back over those important precepts and principles there and make sure that we're not self-deceived. That's helpful. But look, at the end of the day, when you at the end of the day have examined your life and said, Lord, I believe, I trust in Jesus. I'm, I've repented from my sins and I believe that Jesus is my savior. And my Lord, at the end of the day, you can have rest because God is keeping you. My kids are often tasked with feeding our, our dog. And so they will go to the, from the kitchen where we keep his bowl to the, the, the garage where we keep his food and they'll get two scoops of food in his bowl and they'll bring it back to, to the, the mat in the kitchen and they'll set it down. There's zero chance that all of the kernels of food, the kibbles, are going to make it from the garage to the, the kitchen without leaving that bowl. Zero chance. But there is zero chance that any of us will fall out from the sun's grasp on us between here and eternity. He's got us. He's got us. And again, I know some of you wrestle with this. And you, if I can picture it this way, if, if the Christian life is like a journey and we're climbing the mountain together, you've got the, the, the edge of the mountain over here. And some of you, are constantly afraid that you're going to fall off the edge. The writer of Hebrews gives us warning passages. It says, let us 
fear lest any of us should fail to enter the rest. And you think, man, what if, what if that's me? I'm afraid. Well, any good mountain road will also provide guardrails. And those guardrails are there to remind us of the edge is there and, and we need to stay away. But more than that, in the scripture, we don't just have guardrails. Over on the opposite edge, where we're close to the mountain, where we're close to the rock, where we're safe, there's a well-worn path with clear markers and directions on it for what we need to be doing and how to stay away from the edge. And that's God's word. And that's God's people. And this the community of believers. It's the church. And so if you're here this morning and, and you're one that, that's constantly wondering, oh, man, I, I'm afraid I'm going to go off the edge. Let me encourage you that the response to that is, okay, God, what do you want me to do today? You want me to, to be with you? You want me to be in your words? You want me to, to talk with you? You want me to be encouraged by those things? You want me to talk with other believers? In other words, you want me to stay here on this path. And Christian, if you stay there, this principle, what we're talking about here is that God's going to keep you there. That God's going to keep you there. This life is temporary. And that's why this is such good news. We're finding rest in the certainty of our future. The certainty of our future, that, that we will be sustained. That, that we are, as Peter calls us, strangers and aliens and sojourners here in this world. That the greatest hope and source of comfort and security that we have is not to be found here. But it's to be found there. Colossians chapter 1 Sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You also will appear with him in glory. You also, what? You will. You will appear with him in glory. He doesn't say you might. He doesn't say hopefully. He's talking to believers. He says you will. You will appear with him. John 14 one through three, Jesus himself says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus doesn't say, I might come back to you. I might come back for you. He says, I will. So we can rest in the certainty of our future. Yeah, Jesus does get us. And we could be thankful for that. He doesn't get us in the sense that we're all weirdos and it's okay and we should all just be weirdos together and celebrate everybody's individual identity. No, no. He gets us in a far greater way. He gets the depth of our need for him. He gets the fact that, that we need to be reminded of how precious and valuable and great he is. He gets that we needed faith to believe. He gets that we need that faith to be sustained. And he gets that we need him to ultimately deliver us to the presence of his father. And that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel which says that God is perfectly holy. And that we as sinful humanity aren't and we've been driven from his presence by an infinite gap, an infinite chasm. And that to close that gap would require a sacrifice and a repayment that none of us can make. 
but that the Father gave us Jesus to be that for us, who lived a perfect life and died in our place on the cross, satisfying God's full anger and just wrath against our sin so that we can be forgiven and that he also gave us his full righteousness, the merit of that perfect life. So it's not just that we're forgiven, but that we're actually now not guilty, we're innocent with the righteousness of Christ. And he rose from the dead three days later. And the response that that requires from us is faith. Repentance and faith. That we turn from our sins and we believe in Jesus. If you are here this morning and you haven't made that decision, can I ask you to consider whether or not today might be the day that Jesus is giving you to the Son? This might be the moment for regeneration to take place in your life for you to put your trust in Christ. There's no prerequisites. There's no track record. There's no class that you have to take beforehand. It's today, will you repent and believe in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Christ being the bread of life. Thank you that he is better than all of the things that we once lived for and thought so valuable and so precious to us. God, thank you for the the grace that you give us the faith to believe and that the faith that you began in us, you sustain in us. Lord, thank you that you haven't looked at us and said, good luck keeping yourself in the faith in the midst of a world that is so dark. And Lord, thank you that you've secured for us a future and that it's the will of the Father that we should not be lost, but that we should arrive there to spend eternity in heaven with him. God, thank you that our our future is contingent more upon your faithfulness to us than our faithfulness because we are weak and frail creatures. But Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us, even encourage us with this concept and these ideas. Pray that nobody would leave discouraged this morning at the thought of your sovereignty and and our our responsibility and, and, and missing the bigger picture that you are a sovereign God who loves us so much that you gave Jesus. And the offer is there this morning for any to repent from their sins and to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, gave them his full righteousness and rose again so that they might live forever. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the greater bread, the the, the best provision for us, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.